Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today is going to be an interesting and fun show because we're going to talk about functional neurology, brain metabolism, and women, specifically around keto, fasting, and resistance training for women. Because I've heard this weird rumor, I might have even mentioned it in my book, that, that women aren't just little men. And I, this was really groundbreaking knowledge for me, but we have an expert on the show today to talk a little bit in a little bit more detail about that. Dr. Stephanie Estima is a doctor of chiropractic who's looked specifically at women's metabolism and body composition. She's got a new book called The Betty Body. So we're going to learn a lot about when to eat what in your cycle. And we're going to talk about even transformative sex, balancing hormones, intuitive eating, and stuff that applies really meaningfully because it's not okay to say men and women should do the same thing because the studies were only done on men. And a lot of the older research was just for men. And as you've read in my book and as I read in her book, there's a whole bunch of new research that says, oh, look, it's amazing. <laughs> women respond differently. And even some of the anti-aging drugs that I've mentioned in my book, they respond or they work differently for women. So I've got a real expert for you today. Dr. Stephanie, welcome to the show. I am thrilled to be here, Dave. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'm, I'm interested. The Betty Body. What's that all about? I mean, it's a great title. It sounds good for a book, but what is a Betty? So the Bettys, uh, the Betty Army, the Betty Verse, we really came from the name of my podcast. So I am, I've had the uh, pleasure of hosting you on Better with Dr. Stephanie, which is my podcast that I host. It's a weekly show, and the fans of Better are our Bettys. So we started informally kind of secretly calling them our Bettys. And I haphazardly dropped it on one of my uh, Ask Me Anything episodes. And it just sort of took off. So when we would hear, when we would see reviews on iTunes, it's like, I'm a Betty, I want to be a Betty. And so it just sort of took on a life of its own. And couple other things that really solidified the name was um, when you look it up on the Urban Dictionary, didn't know that this existed, but my partner uh, looked it up on the Urban Dictionary and there's a definition for a Betty there. And I'm paraphrasing it, but it, it sounds, some, it goes something like this. You know, a Betty is a modern day queen. She's a triple threat. She's intelligent. She's quirky. She's loving. She um, you know, she emulates uh, intelligence. And I said, well, this is exactly the type of woman that I aspire to be. I'm quirky. I'm loving. I'm intelligent. And I think that my Bettys, you know, the fans of the show and the people who are drawn to me and my work also have those as core values. So the name Betty is really just symbolic for anyone who, any woman or any man, anyone who, the Betty in all of us, who really is aspiring to become more of who we already are and to self-actualize and to continue the quest for learning and becoming our best selves. It, it's really powerful because if you're looking for the personal development angle, which is a part of what you do, getting your cells working, getting your metabolism working, getting your hormones working, they kind of make it easier to be who you want to be. <laughs> but if those are all broken, you can push really hard and you get almost no progress, which is kind of the story of my life, right? Um, one of the things that you talk about in your book is, all right, it's different for women than it is for men. And you need to type into your, or type into, you need to tap into uh, your monthly cycle. And I think a lot of women might say, I'm already doing that. You know, isn't that something that that's already done? What are you doing that's different for tapping into the cycle? Well, I think that a lot of the book, we start off in some of the earlier chapters talking about what a normal menstrual cycle might look like versus versus what a common you know common signs and symptoms that you might experience in the cycle. So it's important, and I'm a bit of a word nerd, so we had to almost dedicate an entire chapter to what is normal versus what is common. So we talk about some of the different hormonal patterning that we see over you know, the 29 and a half days, which is the mean uh, length of a cycle. And then what are some of the permutations that can happen from that? And I think that 
when we look at society, a lot of times we have normal normalized menstrual pain. Well, you have menstrual pain, you should take, you know, this, we have a pill for every ill. And I think that when you look at a sign or a symptom, like a headache, for example, or uh, tender breasts or aching joints or sleep disturbances or moodiness, and you ascribe that as normal, you're not really going to seek to correct it because you think that that is just part and parcel of being a woman. Versus if you were to look at, you know, that aggregate of those symptoms and say, well, um, these may be common for me. And I know many of other of my girlfriends experience this, but I also want to seek a solution to this because I know that it's not normal. So we talk about what um, some of the parameters of normal might be. So what a common, you know, the length of the cycle, which I mentioned, there's a, there's a range. It's not 28 days for everyone. It's, we can have a, a cycle as, as short as 26 days, which is still considered normal all the way up to 32 or 33 days. The length of your bleed week, how long is that? The quality of your bleed, is there clots in, you know, and if so, how big are the clots and how often are you changing your menstrual cup or your pad or whatever, you know, product you're using to capture the blood? What is the color of your blood? Does it change over the, you know, so there's so, there's so many different things that we can learn about our menstrual cycle and really be able to distinguish between what is normal and what is common. And then we go into, in some of the later chapters of the book, what are some of the deviations from normal? So we talk about, you know, perimenopausal women, where we see often from about the age of 35, we start to see this attenuation, this slow lowering of progesterone. So we tend to, in our you know, early forties up to our mid forties, we, there is a tendency for women to be more estrogen dominant in the luteal phase of their cycle relative to progesterone. So we talk about the signs and symptoms of what that might look like, how it might present and what are some of the, um, solutions that a woman can, can go through. So, um, that's how we begin as women to tap into our cycle. And the number one thing I would tell any woman to do if she's not already, and it really shocks me that how many women don't, is to track your cycle. Like download a free app and just get data. Just start accruing some of this data because over the course of several months, you are really going to become, you know, in the book, I sort of tongue in cheek call it like a CPO, like a chief period officer of sorts, right? You're going to really understand your individual constitution because, you know, a woman, if there was another woman standing next to me now, we have the same parts, but we are going to bring, you know, we're going to have different genes, different epigenetic expression and, you know, different ebbs and flows in terms of our hormonal cycle. So every woman really should understand her individuality. Are you a fan of progesterone cream? Am I a fan of, that is a loaded question. Um, I... I think that there is a time and place for bioidenticals uh, like progesterone cream, estradiol. I do like to examine them after some of the foundational basics uh, that we outline in the book have been mastered. So I think that a lot of um, symptoms that women can experience in perimenopause and particularly in late stage perimenopause as they're moving towards menopause can be ameliorated with some basic um, changes in our movement, in our supplementation, in our sleep hygiene, in our sexual health, um, in our nutrition. So I do think that it is absolutely an option uh, for women. I do tend to like to explore that um, after some of the you know foundational basics have been have been mastered. So you don't use it as a as a band aid. No, I had a guy on this show a while back who'd been practicing for decades. And he's sort of like, if there's a problem, progesterone. And it was, it was a pretty out there, but interesting interview because he's like, oh yeah, if you have neck pain, put progesterone cream on and it fixes it. And you know, I've actually seen some ridiculous results sometimes where things that just doesn't make sense. He adds that uh, or recommends adding it. Uh, so I have on occasion used progesterone cream, even though my progesterone levels probably are fine. But it, you know, if you have a weird muscle cramp, it just goes away. But I'm not sure that I would do everything that he talked about. And Clearly, if a woman isn't doing basic metabolic stuff and you use something that's a Band-Aid like that, uh, you can have poor results. And also, if you don't know your levels, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. You really, you know, it's one of the foundational principles of any sort of functional medicine practice is to test and not guess. I mean, this is, you know, borrowing from a chapter from Dr. Mark Hyman, you know, you really need to understand it, particularly for women. If you are, even if you're feeling great right now, it would be an awesome idea for you to get a full workup in terms of you know, there's many, um, there's many tests that you can, that you can do, but get like a full lipid panel, look at your testosterone levels, look at your estradiol and all the metabolites, um, from estrogen metabolism. And so you have at least some sort of baseline now for that, for you to be able to compare to in two years, five years, seven years, 10 years. So I think it's always a great idea to have some sort of baseline measurement, whether you've, you are constantly updating it and you're someone who continuously gets some of this, uh, clinical, this blood work or this, you know, salivary work or, you know, urine work done, um, for you to have this understanding of where you are in terms of your, in terms of your ranges. It, it's such good advice it's for men and women on that. If you know what your hormones look like when you feel really good and you're young and strong, you can target that when you are not as strong and not as young. So having the picture is great. And quite often people, even in their, their late 20s, when you get your hormones, oh, wow, they're already out of whack. I just didn't know. So it's one of those things. It could be you know once in your 20s if that's all you need, but then you know, and it's it's a target. Otherwise, you just you won't know when you're older what the right ratio for your body was. So that's, I think, precious advice. If for people listening to the show, you can say, well, look, it's going to cost me a few hundred dollars to do it. Uh, and yeah, it is. And the chances of finding something actionable are reasonable. But having that data, it's something you can't get later. So it, I think it's a good long-term investment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what's, what's normal, you know, often, you know, we can talk about this in the context of men, you know, when we think about testosterone levels, they can, they can vary from like, you know, 300 milligrams per deciliter all the way up to like 1200 milligrams per deciliter. Mm -hmm. But someone who is sitting at 500, you know, someone who is at 800 and now has come down to 500 might feel like lethargic and can't do anything and is putting on fat versus someone who, you know, maybe was at 600 and has come down to 500 and they don't notice a difference and they're feeling great. So, you know, just like you said, you can't get that data elsewhere. And otherwise you're just shooting in the dark because when you have such a large range in terms of what's considered normal, you know, you and your primary healthcare physician are just like, making stabs in the dark if you don't have any of that other data. So one of the first things I would love, uh, you know, track your cycle and then get a full, get as much data in terms of your, you know, metabolic markers, your sex hormones as you can. Okay. So you'd have them do like an advanced hormone panel and you would have them do a lipids panel. Yeah, I love lipids. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about um, the ketogenic diet, hopefully today. But I, there is a, you know, one of the things I've made sure that I, we talk about keto for women, we talk about keto cycling in the book. But there is, you know, and just with in the air of, you know, uh, transparency and on, like not everybody does well on keto. And for, for some hyper, there are some hyper responders where we can see, you know, LDL numbers go from, you know, a, call it a thousand to like 4,000, you know, it's great. Like the, their lipid levels go wacky. So I, I love to get a comprehensive, um, lipid panel. So not just the standard. So I know that this, a lot of places, uh, the standard lipid panel might be total cholesterol, total LDL cholesterol. They look at your uh, triglycerides, your HDL, but I would also want to be pushing for other things. LP little a, um, which is a uh, lipoprotein little a, uh, which has been, uh, something that has come up, you know, more recently in the literature that has been, uh, that has suggested it's, it's a, a very good marker for atherogen, uh, atherogenic activity. Um, I would want to, uh, if it's available to maybe get a coronary, L, uh, uh, artery calcium score, um, looking at um, LDL particle number, which is distinct from uh, LDL cholesterol number. Like I mentioned, a thousand or under um, is is great. Um, yeah, so I, I, I outline all of these sort of things in in the book, but I think it's really important for um, really important for the listener to to when you're starting any new diet, you want to monitor how you're responding to it. You know, you could be you know. Typically we see with, you know, when we are applying things like carbohydrate restriction or caloric restriction in general, we typically about 80 to 90% of the population are going to have a positive response to that. But if you're in that 10 to 20% 
population that doesn't, you know, we have to think about what your options are. Are we changing the saturated fat content in your diet? Are we taking you off keto in in its entirety, you know, are we, are we changing some of the, the nutrient composition of the diet? So, um, yeah, I like, I like data. I'm a data geek. One of the things that, that I really appreciate in your book is cyclical keto. And, and this has been the bulletproof thing since, you know, 2011, where you go in, you go out, you can be low carb, you can be moderate carb, but unending keto breaks women before it breaks men, but it breaks a lot of men too. And, um, I want you to explain, well, I'm going to tell you what I have observed in people. And also over fasting does the same thing as, as over keto. But I want you to tell me why this happens. So usually within four to six weeks of going on a, on a keto diet, strict keto, 15 grams or less of carbs per day, lots of fat, the, the way you actually do keto, hopefully with good fats, not omega-6. Um, it seems like the first thing that I've noticed, and, and this is also in, in my book, but I want your medical perspective on it is sleep quality goes down pretty dramatically after that amount of time. And then the cycle irregularities start to happen, right? Where it, it's not working like it was before, whether how it changes can vary all over the place, but it's less regular than you'd expect. Um, and then after that is hair shedding. And men, it's different. Men, it takes a little bit longer if they're over-ketoing, over-fasting, but they their sleep goes away. Then they uh, basically wake up without a kickstand. And then they also get hair loss. Let's go to the question about women specifically. So why do those symptoms happen when they're in keto for too long? Oh, we're going to have fun now. Okay. So first, first thing that we want to be considering for women is that we, at any given level of BMI, so um, when we're thinking about any given weight, women will tend to hit the hunger, um, the hunger signals at faster than our male counterparts. So what I'm referring to here is when we're, when we're talking about leptin. So leptin is a satiety hormone. It's secreted from our adipose tissue. And normally when it's working, it should go to some of the ap appetite regulation centers in the brain and tell you to put the fork down. That's what leptin does. Leptin says, put the fork down. Now women for for a variety of, of reasons, tend to be more leptin resistant. So in the same way that we think about insulin resistance, the same can be applied into leptin where your adipose tissue might be secreting leptin, but there is an, there is an attenuation, there's a down, the, 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 appetite regulation centers in the hippocampus uh, and the hypothalamus are not picking up the uh, are not picking up those signals so what ends up happening is you don't put the fork down and you continue to consume uh, calories so in aggregate over time your caloric consumption is higher and of course when we when we're thinking about especially if we're thinking about weight loss which a lot of women tend to think about um, this is going to lead to weight gain in the long run so leptin resistance is one reason why um, the keto long term is is not necessarily a great idea another thing that we that I've noticed in practice so I ran a a ketogenic uh, program in, uh, in when I had a brick and mortar practice. And one of the things that I would notice is about two or three weeks in, you know, first, I mean, I should say first within the first two weeks, especially if it was like a husband and wife couple, right? Like the guy would come in and he'd be like, this is the best doc. Like I've lost like 20 pounds. I feel great. You know? And the woman would be like, I hate him. We're eating the same food. I've lost two pounds. I can't sleep as you were saying. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I notice, particularly with women, is at about week three, it's like two week two or three, it doesn't matter. They just want carbs. They just mm -hmm. want the, the pizza. They want the chips. They want the cookies, the crackers. And when we started, and you and I talked about this on, um, on my podcast, right. when we started supplementing with resistant starches, these prebiotic fibers where we are now giving the large, in, so what a resistant starch is um, for the listener, just as a, if you've heard this before, just can't remember, it's basically a starch that resists digestion. So most of our food is broken down in the small intestine and absorbed as substrate um, for energy. But the resistant starch, the carbon chains are too long. So they bypass the small intestine. They reach the large intestine where they serve as a food source for the microbiome here. And the microbiome chows down 
on these resistant starches, these prebiotic fibers, and they release a short chain fatty acid called butyrate as we, as you talked about this in your book. And I was like, when I was reading it, I was like, yes, <laughs> it's, you know, we are very, very similar. Women do so well on prebiotic fiber, even during fasting, right? It's such a big thing. Yes, they do so well. So that helps to fix keto for women. Absolutely. Because one of, you know, the cravings that women get, these carb cravings is a distress signal from the microbiome. It is a microbiome saying, I have like, you've restricted carbs now for two weeks. I'm hungry. I need my substrate. So the resistant starch, you know, ameliorates that. And I'm going to do a, a quick shout out there. Um, Bulletproof inner fuel is the prebiotic fiber blend that I put together um, oh, that wonderful. I recommended in the book. So for listeners, you've heard me say prebiotic fiber a lot, resistant starch and prebiotic fiber. We're big, we can use those interchangeably in this conversation. Great. I actually have to try yours. That's wonderful. I haven't, um, I didn't realize that you had a product like that. So that's good. Oh, cool. Do you have one as well? I, I do not have my own product. I okay, usually cool. go to the grocer and, and get raw potato starch or, you know, green plantain flour. You'll like the inner fuel. It's uh, acacia gum and hydrolyzed guar and all clinically studied ones. So it's, uh, it works awesome. really well. Yeah, green green plantain or green banana uh, and potato starch, if you don't have a lectin issue, um, those can work for a lot of people. Yeah. So that starch, it's magic during keto. And a lot of people miss out on it, men and women. But I think even with fasting, it's it's it reduces that stress signal from the gut bacteria, which is largely lipopolysaccharide, right? Right, right. And what about activated charcoal? That's one of the hacks that I'm a fan of because it, it blocks that. Do you use it with women during keto? Um, I typically, if I'm going to use act, if I'm going to recommend activated charcoal, it's because I'm suggest like I'm suspecting some sort of, um, you know, toxin overload or digestive issues. And we usually will do it in the evening. So it has to be away from any food and it's like maybe right before they go to bed or 45 minutes before they go to bed, something like that. I usually use it a half hour before a meal. So it's right where the bile um, the bile duct is right when you eat and then your bile gets excreted and it binds to toxins or I do it with a meal if you're eating something you shouldn't eat. <laughs> but yeah, anytime your stomach is empty and nighttime is a good time for that, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so for women, you're saying um, that if they're gonna do like the 28-day keto that you talk about in your book, that they can use res- resistant starch while they do that and then they don't get as many of the symptoms. But it's still only for basically four weeks. You're not going longer than that. Yeah, I, I I chose 28 days, uh, could be no, 30, but I feel like 28 is a female number. So, you know, 28 days. And then from there, um, I move into sort of the second part of that, which is where we are moving in and out of keto. Everybody listen to this. You move in and out of keto. You don't stay in it forever. <laughs> so thank you for for saying that message. Yeah, yeah no worries. I, I think that... Um, and I know that this uh, this runs contrarian to a lot of the you know die hard. There's a lot of people in the you know I'm not super popular in the keto community. The the keto bros they just like to fight. They're going to always argue about stuff. And if you eat a carb, you're a bad person. I'm so tired of that. It doesn't it doesn't work. <laughs> it also makes you angry. <laughs> it also it makes you angry, and you're just you're just happier. And like also you know PSA that carbs vegetables are carbs, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's not just the breads and the cookies and the chips and the crackers that we're talking about here. We're talking about strategically when we're thinking about adding carbohydrates, we're thinking about adding in plants that have polyphenols and other compounds that are going to help with liver detoxification. And they're going to help with, you know, bowel movement and, you know, insoluble fiber and all of these beautiful things. So I'm laughing because I posted something on Instagram earlier that said macronutrients are dumb. Because mm-hmm. it's a carb. Well, broccoli is not the same as corn syrup, but they're both carbs. So let's stop talking about carbs and let's talk about which carbs. And some people got really offended, like macros matter. But what you're saying there is pick the right macros and it changes things. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, the other thing when we when we think about, you had mentioned, um, I just wanted to circle back for a moment to butyrate. You know, one of the things that we notice with women, a lot of women would come to me and say, I can't sleep. So we know that butyrate has potent effects on our ability to both fall asleep and to stay asleep as well. So really, really important just to kind of tie up that resistant starch. Do you like resistant starch at night? No, no, I, I'll usually have it. Uh, I usually have a cold either in water um, or I'll have it sort of in a like hidden in a in a smoothie. Like if I'm I putting put it in my coffee. Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea, too. Because you can't taste it. At least the stuff that I make, it's very neutral. Um, so then any hot beverage, it goes in faster. See, I like black coffee. I, I love a 
like a strong black coffee. So, um, or sometimes I'll put a little MCT oil, but yeah. If you put just, you know, a scoop of resistant starch in and black coffee, if it's a neutral tasting starch, you don't taste it. It's still strong black coffee and it ha- doesn't change the consistency. The ones that have flax seeds and bulk mm-hmm. fiber, is, that's like coffee soup. It's gross. But ones that go in fully liquid, um, it's it's actually quite drinkable. So I'm, I'm with you. I drink a lot of black coffee. I drink some Bulletproof coffee too. Um, but the reason I was asking about timing is that um, there's emerging evidence, and I've noticed this myself, if you take probiotics at night, it actually doesn't help with sleep quality. It can reduce sleep quality, I think, because your microbiome is adjusting and all. And I suspect, in fact, I've even noticed it in my own results. If I take resistant starch at bedtime, um, I experimented with this as I was writing um, Fast This Way. Um, it, I was thinking, well, it'll maybe give me more energy. It'll maybe be good, but I, I think it disturbs sleep. I'm not sure, but I think it's a morning, noon kind of thing. Yeah, I agree. I tend to have it in the morning. But even if we sort of even peel back, like when is the ideal time? If we think about putting energy into the system late at night, you know, you're now you're going to be messing with your peripheral oscillators. So we have, you know, as you know, we have this sort of central circadian clock, the sternal, um, I was going to say the sternocleidomastoid. Sorry, that's my chiropractor. The SCM, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the other SCM. So we have the SCN, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, master clock. But then when you are putting energy into the system. So even though you're not you even though your body's not breaking it down as a substrate, you're still feeding the microbiome. There's still energy and there's, you know, there's a revving up that can happen. So your liver is like, "Hey, there's en-, you know, that's a peripheral mm-hmm. oscillator. Your your gut is a peripheral oscillator." So you I I I can see why it would mess up sleep. I would tend to just have it in the morning or the afternoon. Uh, I'm going to take a note on that cuz I, I was like, "I know this, but I've never actually said it before." which is which is cool so thank you for talking through the science on that with me when women are doing keto um, they add some resistant starch they do much better after 28 days how often do they go back into keto so it depends on how you know it depends on whether she is i sort of divide in the book uh women into two main cohorts women who are still in their reproductive um you know years or women who are menopausal so we nuance these protocols for menopausal women as well and i'll just before we kind of get into the geeky details i think that menopausal women generally are forgotten about <laughs> like we're you know as we pass through 50 it's like well you know she's washed up so whatever she can't you know have babies anymore so let's just and we sort of see this on you know the big screens and you know the sensuality and sexuality of women who are over 50 is really not celebrated and it's um, so anyway, I just, that's my own little feminist, like stake in the ground that I think that women, um, should, can, and should be, uh, exploring and always looking to self-actualize no matter what age they are. But in terms of metabolism, um, I love for a woman in her reproductive years, um, when she is in her, uh, in her bleed week, you know, so when she's shedding her endometrial lining, she's on her period, this is generally the first, actually the first two weeks of her menstrual cycle. It's, it's over, the overarching term there is her follicular phase because we're developing the follicle. These are times to experiment and play with a carbohydrate restriction a caloric restriction, like, uh, you know, tool like fasting. These are great times if you've never done it before to play with it. Cause you are much more resilient in this, in this first two week period to be doing things like carbohydrate restriction, protein restriction, uh, caloric restriction in general. So in her bleed week is, is when I typically will say, let's do keto. Let's try keto this week. Let's bring down your carbs. Your protein is, you know, moderate, you know, moderate consumption of protein. Uh, so t- anywhere between 20 and 25% of her total calories. Uh, obviously, you know, as, as, you know, Dr. Mark Hyman says, like, you know, food is information. So it's, it, there is a difference between, as you were saying, like a candy bar and, uh, you know, a, um, a broccoli. And in terms of protein, of course, we know if it's, if it's available to you, uh, you know, financially or locally, uh, or otherwise, you know, grass-finished, uh, organic, humanely raised and humanely killed uh, beef or meat products. Um, and then, of course, you know, a, um, um, a smorgasbord of, of the type of fats. Like I tend to have, you know, some saturated fats, polyunsaturated fats. Um, you'll, get all, you'll get that from the meat anyway. You're going to get some saturated fat from the meat too. So do you actually take extra polyunsaturated? So- no, no. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. I wouldn't add seed oils. No, no, absolutely not. So okay. what I mean by fats is if you're, ha- if you're having fats, you might have some avocado, you might yeah. have, uh, you know, some olive oil, you might have some coconut, you're going to get the saturated fat from the meat as well. Maybe butter. I mean, Butter, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so we have that constitution in in her bleed week. What about fasting during the bleed week? There's some controversy in the space right now. I, I think that you know, there's the way that I like to approach nutrition is to always have a lens of flexibility. If you if you feel terrible fasting, the number one rule of fasting is to listen to your body. So mm-hmm. if you're on the floor crying because you want you know, food, then just stop the fast, like cut, cut the energetic cords. Let's just get over, like your body is, is always smarter than any algorithm you can run in your brain. So, you know, you have to really begin to attune to her signals. So I, I like the idea of fasting. I talk about a couple of different ways that you can fast in the book. So I sort of look at three different variables that you can manipulate. One is the type of fast. So you can do a water fast. You can do uh, a caloric liquid fast. So that might be, you know, a bone broth fast. You can do fasting mimetics, like a ketogenic diet would fall under a fasting mimetic. There's a fasting mimicking diet. Um, so there's a lot of diff- there's a lot of different types of fast. The length of the fast is also another variable that you can manipulate. So that can yeah. be a daily time restricted eating. Uh, protocol. It can be a 24 hour fast. It can be 72, you know, so you can play with the length. During your, during your period, a multi-day fast? Not necessarily during your period, but as sort of, you know, in explaining what, how you can begin to play with fasting, there are different variables that you can manipulate. And the, the other one is, is frequency. So how often do you do it? Is it every day? Is it once a month, once a quarter? But in your, um, in your bleed week, you know, usually for most women, the first day or two, they're sort of, you know, a bit sluggish and, you know, crampy and achy. But as you sort of get into the rhythm of things, I, I love, um, you know, if you've never tried fasting before to try a 12 hour fast. Love what you just said. A 12 hour fast, not an 18 hour fast. No, goodness. No, Uh, because there is extra stress during that week. So doing the more stressful types of fasting is harder to do. And if you're an experienced faster, maybe it works. But in, in my book, I'm like, you know, if you're looking for, a, you know, the, the time when you might want to not fast if you don't feel like it, it's when you're bleeding, right? Because you have enough stress. So it's okay to eat then. But if you want to do a fast, a shorter fast seems to make a lot of sense. And right. I, I think your advice is about intuition and all that. But a lot of women um, through the history of intermittent fasting over the last 10 years, it's sort of like, I'm going to do it the same way every day or every week. And it feels like shortening the fast or just saying, you know, today I'm having breakfast because I wanted breakfast and that that's what creates the the best energy. Is that directionally accurate? Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Absolutely. I would agree with that 100%. Another time to increase your fasting windows a week before your period, right? So we talk about the bleed week being sort of a gentler fast. I also think in week four, you know, you are under now the influence of progesterone, which is a potent stimulator of your appetite. She is going to be slowing down your bowel movements. She's going to be increasing your temperature. So there's all, you know, it's, it's also you're generally going to be hungrier. And I would also say that your caloric demands also go up that week, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like a peak week of sorts. Plus, you're hotter. Where does heat come from? Calories, you know. <laughs> exactly. There's right. Exactly. So there is a caloric um, uh, requirement for you to be eating more. I actually like women to eat more this week, but also to be a bit gentler in terms of the um, in terms of the fasting window that they have. So twelve, twelve, 
um, is where I like to start. You can move up to 10, 14 if you're sort of a seasoned um, faster. I think that a lot of women, and I would say humans in general, um, love to jump to the 16, 8. And right. I think that that's okay, but it's also... Uh, you know, as you've, as you've also said in your book, I think that you need to really be able to modulate this on a day-to-day basis. And I've actually found as I used to not eat until 12 and I would do sort of the 12 to six or 12 to seven. And I, I don't, I, that doesn't work. Like I usually eat, you know, do my workout in the morning. I I'll have my protein and my carbs and whatever I'm having after the workout. Um, and then I'll have, you know, breakfast, uh, shortly thereafter. So I find that I like actually eating earlier in the day and cutting off my eating window, um, in the, in the afternoon to, um, to evening that sort of works a little bit better for me. The cool things that COVID has done, because a lot of people are cooking now they're at home. So I know just based on circadian biology, the ideal time to eat, if you were to eat once a day would be 2 PM. But if you're in an office, there isn't a lunch time there and right. then you don't get the business dinner. You, it, like it doesn't work. Right. So then it's just eat dinner as early as you can. You're fine. But now quite often I'm doing exactly the same thing where I will just have one or maybe two meals a day, but earlier in the day. And I really don't like eating after five, but sometimes, you know, with family, I'll eat at five 30, but after that, no, but if you're eating at seven, it changes everything, right? Totally changes everything. It changes your ability to fall asleep, to maintain sleep, changes your, you know, it's all, it's almost like the, uh, if you, I'm totally revealing my age here, but I remember watching Bill Cosby when he would go and get like that hoagie sandwich on uh, the Cosby show. And then he would have these like crazy dreams. And that's exactly what happens, right? You have these, mm-hmm. uh, crazy dreams and you're, you're, you know, if you are, if you're someone who's wearing, you know, a wearable overnight, you'll also see things like your heart rate variability is going to lower. So it's not going to be as variable as it should be. Your heart rate tends to uh, be a little bit higher as well. Like your body's working harder to get back to that homeostasis and to balance that allostatic load. So I, I definitely am in agreement with you. I like to cut my eating off at least at least three hours uh, before my bedtime to allow for the stomach to empty and for allow, you know, to allow some of those peripheral oscillators like we were talking before to say, okay, yeah, there's no more food here, guys. Like we can shut her down for, for tonight. Right. Uh, and it's, it, I would just say, guys, if you're listening to this and thinking about it, if you've never tried having dinner at three and just not eating after that, it's not as hard as you might think. And it's strangely relaxing. It, it actually works. In your book, you talk about the luteal phase as the get shit done phase. Yes. <laughs> uh, with its own little GSD hashtag. Yes. Um, why is that the GSD phase? So there are, this is, and this was sort of like the overlying premise of the book as well. I want women to not look at their period as a curse, as I did every, like I used to think that I was getting punished every month for being a woman for decades. Um, And, you know, once you actually tune in to the ebbs and flows of your hormonal milieu, this is really your superpower. So for example, we talked about the luteal phase being your GSD, you know, get stuff done um, time. And the reason why that is, if we, if we think about the influence of estrogen, so estrogen is a trophic hormone. It's an anabolic hormone. Uh, it's the reason why, you know, it gives us our breasts and our hips and our curves and our pumps up our cheekbones. And, you know, it also bathes our brain, our verbal articulation centers. So this is a really great time to launch a book, which is what I did. I launched my book in my luteal phase uh, of my cycle. I could predict it because I knew when my, uh, I knew when it was all uh, going down. And it's a really great time to give a presentation, to be on podcasts, to ask for a raise because you have a better handle on your vernacular. You are going to be able to pull words out and you're going to be able to effortlessly express yourself. So that's, that's one reason. And the other, um, the other reason of course, is that we see uh, progesterone in the, towards the end of our luteal phase. So we talked about some of the metabolic impacts that progesterone has on our appetite, slows down our bowel movements, but she also helps with uh, stimulating some of our neurotransmitters like GABA. So she chills us. She brings down the anxiety levels. So you able, you're able to have more clarity of thought for you to be able to think through problems and to be able to get things done. So you you anthropomorphize hormones. Does that mean that testosterone is a he? Uh, I no. I, I, I that's just <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. No. Like, that's so when a woman has her testosterone, he will. I was 
<laughs> oh, that's so funny. I didn't even realize I was doing that. So testosterone actually, you know, fun fact is actually the most abundant. I know we phenotypically ascribe that to men, yeah. but you know, f- you know, it is the most abundant sex hormone that we have. We actually yeah. have in more testosterone. Too. Yes. In women. Um, so testosterone, I guess I should probably not, uh, gender. No, I, I wasn't know. criticizing. <laughs> I, I think it's kind of funny. Like estrogen, she does. I'm like, well, it is she a female hormone. It makes sense. That. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. So, and the other, the other thing that's really um, great about the luteal phase is the couple of days right before you begin your bleed. So a lot of women will say this is the worst time of their cycles. Like, you know, their boss is getting on their, you know, nerves that, you know, their husband or their partner uh, can't do anything right. They chose the wrong nail polish. The food is wrong. The clothes are wrong. Like everything is wrong. But what's happened here is now we've seen a sudden drop in both progesterone and estrogen. So now we've had the you know the, the there's been no fertilization of the egg and so now progesterone drops the endometrial lining is becoming ischemic and now we are going to we're getting ready to shed but what's really beautiful about these 3 days and this is where a lot of women will say oh this is when i'm really moody and i'm really upset and i'm really emotional and really crying what your body is allowing you to do is to evaluate the things in your life that are not working for you so maybe the boss that is sucking your soul or the career path that is driving you nuts. Maybe this is a really potent time for you to reevaluate that. Maybe this is a, you know, this is a time to reevaluate your relation, your personal relationships. Maybe you need to set better boundaries or you need to have difficult conversations, or it's a time where you are able to, you know, have a journey inward and say, these are the things that I'm, I'm still not happy about in terms of what's happening you know, whether it's my metabolism or my energy or, you know, whatever health goals. Um, so it's a, it's actually a beautiful time for us to feel our feelings, all of the, all the dark stuff, um, and to be able to make change on it, um, into, into the next cycle. One thing we haven't talked about here is there's probably two days that are the biggest GSD time of all, um, which is ovulation. Tell me about what's going on in the brain and the body and the pheromones and uh, how to work with that. Well, this is actually the main reason that we have a cycle. So I know that, you know, everyone focuses on the period. She's the, you know, she's the popular girl at the party. We all focus on the period, but the ovulation is like the geeky girl off to the side. Like that is the main reason why we have a menstrual cycle. So what happens immediately before ovulation is we have a really big spike in estrogen. So estrogen will go from, you know, I've seen labs, um, you know, anywhere from like five picograms per deciliter, and it will go within a matter of days up to like 500 or 600 picograms per deciliter. We also see testosterone. Uh, she is also peaking <laughs> at this time. <laughs> so testosterone is also peaking. So this is a time where, um, you know, you feel flirty, you feel sexy, you feel extroverted. You know, I always make the joke that like, I'm chasing my husband Giovanni around the dining room table. Like this is the time. Time, right? right. And this is, uh, these two hormones in particular, we've talked about estrogen, how it's an anabolic hormone. So is testosterone. So testosterone is of course involved in our libido. It's involved in our lean muscle mass. And I talk about in the book, how we can really profit from the, their trophic effects by changing. We talk about changing the macronutrient composition of the diet, but also how you can change how you train, you know? So this is a really great time for you to be doing heavy weights, how you are, you are lifting really, really heavy weights because your tendons are also a lot stiffer here. So under the influence of estrogen, your tendons will stiffen up. So that means that when you are lifting a weight, now that force that is being generated in the muscle can actually pull stronger on the tendon, which is going to, which is going to be able to move the bone. Also fun fact, terrible time for hit, like high intensity. Oh, interesting. When you're ovulating, hit doesn't work. It's a terrible time for it because by the same, you know, when estrogen starts to elevate, we see that tendon stiffening. We also see our ligaments become much more lax. So this ligamentous laxity, our ligaments become more like loosey-goosey. So if you are thinking about, you know, burst or like explosive types of uh, activities where, you know, whether you're sprinting or you're on a bike and you're like, it's all up, balls to the wall, you are really... 
uh, setting your ligaments up for injury. And we actually see this in the literature that women who um, are, are involved are involved in some of these explosive types of powers tend to injure our ligaments around ovulation. Uh, it's been studied in the ACL joint, the anterior cruciate ligament um, in the knee. Yeah. So there's good good and bad times for HIT uh, for a woman who's menstruating. And, and right before ovulation is, is, a, is a terrible time really to do it. So I actually will counsel women to do, if they want to do, um, you know, they can still have their resistance training that week because they have stiffer tendons. It's a great time to lift heavy, but maybe they want to do some steady state cardio um, during this week. Um, and there are other times in the cycle where we see estrogen uh, not as high, not having that loosey-goosey, that laxious effect on our ligaments where a HIIT training is absolutely appropriate. Another fun fact about ovulation, my wife likes to remind me of this, um, and she's a medical doctor, and she says, well, Dave, there's studies that smart women, their IQ goes down for two days. And women who aren't as smart, their IQ goes up for two days, right when they're ovulating. Hmm. I've heard that our voice goes up, that our voice gets a little higher, like we get a little higher pitched around ovulation. I've heard that one too, but I haven't seen the study, but I'm believing it because my wife said it. And if I don't believe it, she'll beat me. So, <laughs> uh, but also she's kind of well-trained on this, but it, it's fascinating because there's all these things going on. It, I, she, she says, well, it's to make women, you know, more attractive. You know, this is our biology trying to make us the most attractive mates, right? When we could get pregnant. Uh, and I was like, wow, that's, that's interesting. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll say it's true. And also you were talking about best time to do a podcast. Um, if you're going to go to a stage presentation and you're ovulating, it'll be the best stage presentation you ever did because everyone in the room's locked on you and they don't know why. Right. But it's a very, uh, several of my you know, close uh, women friends have told me that to like, oh my God, best speech ever. You know, I think this was why. Um, so there is a, a superpower that comes from that. That's all subliminal, but it seems like it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We've talked about keto. Uh, we've talked about fasting. We've talked about when you do it, uh, when you don't do it. What are some of the most common mistakes that you find that women make when they start messing with their diet? Like the number one thing you see. Oh, that's a good question. I I would say in general, um, when I when someone is first starting any type of diet, I like data. So I will ask them to track what they're eating. And most women hate this. They're like, oh, it's so annoying to like put it into an app every time. But I think that most people have no idea what the macronutrient composition of the diet is. And I agree that we can't really make policy from, you know, the macronutrient, comp- like we can't say everyone should have a, you know, a 40, 40, 20, like you can't make, you know, gross. Because um, um, yeah, gluten is a protein, right? Ex- exactly, <laughs> like, exactly, exactly. You can't, you can't make that. But I think that we have absolutely no idea, A, what the macronutrient composition of our diet is, and B, how much calories we're taking in. I think that when you're not tracking and you're not measuring you know, we've seen this in the literature as well. We tend to underestimate our caloric intake from anywhere from 30 to 50%. So if you're a woman who's like, okay, I got to get my inflammation under control. I have brain fog or maybe weight loss or fat loss as a goal. That's a lot. That's a lot to be off, right? So it's really important to have data. So that's probably the number one thing that I see is that people don't really have a handle on exactly what they're eating. And when I ask them to journal about their foods or to, to track their foods, usually they're like, oh my God, I can't believe how much calories I was actually taking in versus how much I thought I was taking in. And of course, your calories are going to change as they should through your menstrual cycle. As I was saying, in that fourth week, I actually like women to take in more calories that week, like anywhere from 10 to 15% more calories, because it's really going to help with the building of the endometrial lining and you need it. Um, But to have a handle on what it is that you're taking in generally, I think is really powerful information. I feel like there are are a good number of women and some men too, who are undercaloried all the time. Just because there's, you, know, you go to the restaurant, they serve this tiny little plate. And I'm like, I know my basal metabolic rate is 2,997 calories a day. I'll have three of those. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and I'm like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I, I actually eat. Like, I'd like <laughs> a meal. I'd like an actual meal, please. Yeah. yeah. How much do you see women under calories? You know, oh, I had a big salad for lunch. Right? That was 140 calories because you didn't put dressing on it or whatever. It, it, is that a, a common thing in your practice or is it less common? 
Well, I would say that um, what I tend to see in terms of being undercaloried is that women have just been on a diet for decades, right? They've been they've been employing some sort of caloric restriction over some like you know crazy delta T over some crazy amount of time. That's called a famine. Yeah, it's <laughs> called a famine. Signaling. Exactly, exactly. So I do I do see that, and we you know um, in the book we talked about uh, I was looking at some literature, and I, granted it was it was looking at rodents, but they were looking at the effects of you know, intermittent fasting and or calorically restricting these rodents for, I, it was a six, uh, it was a six month stint and they either did a 20% CR or they did a 40% CR. And of course they were looking at male and female rodents. And what they found of course, was that the male rodents, better tea, better, better testosterone, better fertility, their sleep was better. And for women, of course, the opposite was true. They had abnormal menstruation. They had sleep disturbances. Um, they were, they saw shrinkage in their ovaries. Now, while this is a rodent study, you can't completely extract it to humans. I can also say from a clinician's point of view, I've also had many women talk about sleep disturbances from being on diets that were like 800 calories and they were supposed to work out two hours a day or whatever it was. That's just mean. No one should do that. It's mean. You're right. It's mean. And no one and no one really should be doing that. So I think that we often think that health is this really difficult full-time job that we all, you know, we need to hire the personal trainer and we need to hire the body worker and we need to hire the nutritionist and the chef and the, this. I, I think that it's, you know, once we sort of step into the intuitive nature that our bodies already have, if you can begin to decode her signals or his signals, um, then you really become more attuned with your body rhythms and you'll be able to, you know, respond appropriately and you'll be able to, you know, the way that your body requires and the way that, the way that it, that, that it expects you to. So, um, caloric restriction is definitely something, uh, particularly with women because societally we're, you Mm -hmm. know, we're taught that our worth is, you know, the losing weight is like the most important thing that a woman can ever do. You know, you have, you know, stars and they lose weight and they're all over the gossip rags. And that's the only thing that people ask them about, you know, they don't ask them about their achievements or their thoughts or their opinions. So, I do think that there is a really big focus on the, on the appearance of women. Um, and that's not to say that if you're someone, you know, that's not to poo poo a goal that you have. If you're somebody who wants to lose, if you're someone who's like, listen, I want to have a bit more of a robust metabolism. I want to change my body composition. You should absolutely be proud in making a goal like that. But I would love for you to like, love yourself for where you are and then begin to, you know, start at the top and then go up from there, right? Like start where you are appreciative for all the things that your body has ever done for you, has ever survived, um, and then begin to slowly unpeel some of those layers and get back to, you know, as I say in the book, like closer to who you already are. I I really like that. I feel like there's a smoking gun in the room that we haven't talked about. Birth control pills. Oh, okay. So um, I um, don't love them. I'll I'll just start there. I think that they are overprescribed. I think that they are the off-label prescription for everything from acne to headaches to perimenopause, like hello, um, I, I think is inappropriate. And I think that women in general, when we look at women's medicine, we typically, you know, as we are attaching ourselves to the promise of what it's going to give us, we often divorce ourselves from the risks. And I think that, um, the, I, for me, the, the idea here is informed consent. You know, if, if we were to tell a man, you know what, we're going to put you on this pill, it's going to chemically castrate you. And once you come off of it, your, your fertility, uh, we don't know if you're going to, if you guys are going to, you're going to have any swimmers left. We have, you know, you're going to very likely be depressed. Uh, your metabolism is going to go awry. You're probably going to gain weight. Your interest in sex is probably going to go down. And there's that cancer risk thing, yeah. And stroke and uh, all, you know, what do you think? (laughs) You know? (laughs) I I think that you don't love them. I'll just straight up say it. Hormonal birth control is a pharmaceutical crime against women. Mm. It's it's chemical castration. And and it's, there might be a few medical cases, but there are many other safe forms of birth control, which is a basic human right. Right. But to choose that one without knowing what it's doing because all of the stuff we're talking about with the cycle assumes you have a cycle. And if you're on the pill, your cycle is kind of broken. And you maybe can apply your techniques when you're doing, you know, when, when the pill is mimicking whatever cycle you have. But I feel like that's a big thing that's messing with women's minds uh, and with their metabolisms uh, that oftentimes just isn't talked about. 
And 85% of women at some point in their life are, are on the pill and it has longstanding consequences. And the literature backs up everything that you're saying. You know, you, we know that women are more likely to be put on an antidepressant um, as a result of, well, maybe not as a, they, the literature doesn't report it as a result of, but most women who are on the pill are also, will be prescribed at some point an antidepressant. We know that the uh, the pill gobbles up uh, CoQ10 and B vitamins and ha- causes this metabolic derangement. So if you're a woman, let's say you have a bit more of an androgen uh, dominant predisposition, um, and then you get put on let's say a statin, which we also know gobbles up CoQ10 and all your B vitamins, you are, you know, potentially causing, um, you know, mayhem. So I think that, um, um, you know, I, I have one of my colleagues, uh, I, who I believe, you know, uh, Dr. Jolene Brighton has written a, a book on this. I think she's been on the show. Yeah. Yeah. And she outlines, she outlines it very, very well. And, and she's been on my podcast as well, talking about it. So I think that, um, and we've had other experts that talk about, um, like I've had OBGYNs on the show and like the general consensus is, you know, women just will take this stuff. And there's like this sort of, when I was, when I was researching the pill, I remember, I, I remember coming across this like sort of like joke in the, you know, in the contraception community that there's like this male pill that's, um, you know, that's five years away from being on the market, but it's been that way for the past 40 years, you know? So it's like this idea that it's like never, you know, a guy would never, never subject himself to these things. But women, we cut out our organs, we cut off our organs, you know, whether it's physical or chemically, um, without really looking at how we can get to some of the more underlying like the root cause or underlying issues that are causing some of the symptoms that she's experiencing in the first place. I like your approach of, you know, tracking your cycle, recognizing your cycle and working with it to get the results you want instead of, you know, using hormones to uh, turn it off basically. Uh, So I I feel like in the world of fasting and keto and cyclical keto more specifically, uh, no one to my experience, including me has really um, done a lot of a, a lot of research or a, a lot of writing about how you'd apply those things if you're using the pill versus what I would say is well maybe you should get off the pill first mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then start doing those things is that good advice is that the same that, that you would share yeah I mean I would you know I would always want you to be working with your primary health care provider in terms of like what the best thing is for you but in an ideal world we would be able to say all right let's let's teach you some of these other ways you know I love fertility awareness method um around you know what are some alternatives for for contraception because I think that women we've been taught to fear our fertility but we've just never been taught how they work like I used to think that I, going into a pool I could get pregnant you know and like the truth of the matter is there's only like a really short period of time in your cycle where you are fertile and that you become you can be pregnant become pregnant. There are other times in your cycle where it is physiologically impossible for you to be pregnant. So I think that if we are able to really hone into some of these rhythms and learn what it looks like for us uh, through whether it's basal body temperature, you know, looking at your cervical mucus, like all of these different things where you're learning about your own signals around fertility, I think that we can help more women get off yeah. of hormonal contraception and really um, and use some of these cyclical um, tactics around nutrition and training and supplementation that we've been talking about today. And there are, to be really clear, there are times like severe endometriosis where, hey, it, it's a lifesaver. Um, yes. So I'm not talking about specific medical conditions. I'm just talking about, oh, as a lifestyle thing, oh, you turn 16, you might get pregnant here, take these hormones <laughs> that mess with your brain. Like, no, don't, don't do that. There's better ways. That's such a great example because around the age of 16, we know that a woman, like a young girl's menstrual cycle is actually going to become dysregulated just because of her growth, what's happening with her estrogen and her testosterones. She's actually going to look a bit more you know, androgen dominant, she's going to look a bit more PCOS-y, you know, polycystic ovary ovary syndrome-esque around that 16, 17, 18. And that's actually when we first see that first prescription uh, for the pill given. So if you actually just let her ride it out, it's like, you know, anytime you do a new skill, right? Anytime Mm -hmm. you learn something new, you're not, you're going to suck at it. (laughs) The same is true for menstruation. You know, you're going to, you're not perfect at it in the beginning, but as you sort of get into the rhythm, get into the flow, you know, um, then you can then you can really start to play around with the nuances. But to really throw young girls on um, on the pill when that's sort of the natural uh, 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 tendency, anyways, for it to become a little dysregulated in those in those few years, I think is is a crime. 
well, thanks for for sharing that. And many other guests on the show have have agreed with what we're saying here. So I don't think this is news unless you're a new listener to the show. In which case, yep, there's good science behind what we just said. Uh, now, you said something else in the book uh, to change gears entirely that I thought was really interesting. You talked about coronal plane exercises and brain health. Yes, do share. All right. So this is really because we spend most of our life in the sagittal plane. So the sagittal plane, uh, when you think of the two primary movements that happen in the sagittal plane, it's flexion and extension. So think about your day. You wake up, you walk down the stairs, you sit, maybe you have a cup of coffee or you have breakfast, and then you sit in your car and you drive to work and then you sit at your office or maybe you're at your home office and you sit in front of your desk and then, you know, you drive home or you come back upstairs, you sit on the couch again and we're just like sit, sit, sitting all over the place, right? So this is a, 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 flex, a flexion dominant um, uh, type of movement. And what ends up happening over time is when we sit inflection. So what happens, of course, is that you're having a lot of the front muscles. So the chest, the sternocleidomastoid, which I messed up with, <laughs> with the uh, superchiasmatic nucleus. Yeah, the SCM, which is the dominant neck flexor um, in, in the neck. These are all going to become short and tight. This is going to lead to this anterior head carriage. You're going to sort of have this flat, this forward flex position. What ends up happening is something called physiological creep. And no, I don't mean like the weird person at the office who's like staring at you. I mean like there's there's something that happens to your tendons, your muscles, and your ligaments where they will start to assume this flexed short and like the flexor muscles will start to assume this shortened position even when you're not in it. And of course, the opposite muscles when we think about our extensors are becoming long and weak. So what I love to talk about is coronal plane exercises. So these are exercises that move away from the midline or so it's abduction or they come back to the midline adduction. And what these are really important for in particular two muscle groups, we want to we want to be talking about the um, the proximal appendicular muscles, which is just like a fan, let's fancy um talk for the muscles that are closest to the spine, but not actually the spine. So the shoulders and our glutes. And I talk about these coronal plane exercises as a medium for us to be developing the strength in our glutes. We sit on them all day long. So they're long and weak, right? These are extensors for the most part, but they're also external rotators and uh, rotators of the hip. So if we are able to develop more coronal plane exercises. What are a couple, couple of the most common ones? Oh, sure. Yeah. So when we think about when we're moving, like a jumping jack might be an example of a coronal plane exercise where your arms are abducting, your legs are abducting. Um, when you are doing, let's say a curtsy squat where your leg is crossing behind you um, to, to do a one-legged squat, uh, warrior two pose, you know, where your arms are extended out, your legs are away from the midline, a jumping squat would be an example of these. So these are all um, developing the outside part, the the side muscles, if you will, the, the muscles on the side of the body. And why this is really important, not only is uh, is it going to help with your brain health, it's going to help actually maintain some of the lateral parts um, of your brain, but it's also going to help with your longevity. I actually just posted something uh, not too long ago around this idea that getting up from the floor unassisted, so not using your hands or even lying down on your back and being able to stand up unassisted is one of the markers of longevity. So in order to do that, in order to sit on the floor and, you know, not use your hands, you need to have strength and power in the glutes. You need to have proprioception in the ankles, the joint, the, the joints in the ankle, the hips, the spine, the knees. Um, and you need to also, there's a, there's a whole other, you know, there's like the vestibular system and there's, you know, your cardiovascular system, et cetera. But what we're really working on is the explosive power of the glutes from an elongated position. Like you're, when you're, when your glutes are really long, they're at their weakest. They cannot generate as much power, right? So we want to be thinking about, um, we want to be thinking about exercises that work the coronal plane, that work these proximal um, appendicular muscles for, for longevity. 
And I, I always like, I, I put this in the book, but I'm, I'm already like, I'm training to be the favorite grandmother. Like I want to be on the floor with my grandkids, you know, playing with them. I want to be able to throw them and run after them. And, you know, and in order to do that, I need to have strong glutes. And, you know, we've, I've done, um, I, I think I talked about this in the book. I've talked about this publicly before that glutes are one of the muscles that are really great. Like their strength and integrity, um, or lack of marbling, if you will, um, is a, is a, is a sign of longevity. So these, these are very, very important to be considering when we're for women, um, for women and men. But when we think about women moving into menopause, we now are in a lower estrogen, a lower testosterone environment. So it becomes harder over time to build muscle. It's not like you can't do it, but you know, you have more anabolic resistance in the muscle. So it's really, really important for women, women of any age to be thinking about driving, um, muscle protein synthesis and muscle growth, um, through things like jumping squats or just squats or, you know, curtsy squats or the things that we've been, that we've been talking about to develop these appendicular muscles. The other good thing about having, uh, having a good, booty, for lack of a better word, is uh, it actually increases the number of synapses in the brain. There's some studies around uh, number of neural connections <laughs> and the strength of your glutes. So squats are good for the brain. Squats are good for the brain. Absolutely. And we also know the opposite is true too, right? So when you, if you were someone who were to slip and fall, for example, and you were to fracture your hip, we actually know that the, the cognitive decline that follows that is quite stark, right? So to your point where we don't have that input anymore, when we're not able to do the squats because we're recovering and we're immobilized, um, it's also going to have those deleterious effects on the, um, you know, the thickness and the juiciness and the, you know, the bigness, if you will, of the, of the brain. Very well said. Well, I've, uh, I've enjoyed chatting with you today. I think we shared a ton of knowledge with listeners about things that I, I actually haven't heard on the show before. So thank you. And there's a lot more in your book as well. So I thought you had a ton of references and just really good actionable advice. So especially for our women listeners, and there are many, if I look at the stats, um, I think you guys want to check this out. It's bettybodybook.com, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Stephanie, thanks for showing up and sharing so much knowledge. Dave, it's been, it's been a pleasure. I've had such a great time with you today. If you guys liked this podcast episode, I have a favor to ask of you. When you buy the Betty Body book, leave a review. That's all you have to do. And this is like leaving a tip for a barista. So authors... Uh, we pay attention to those reviews and they help other people find the book. So if the book is of service to you and it was worth more to you than you paid for it, leave a review. And that's just a way of being nice. And think of this service to others puts you in a flow state and makes you live longer. So it's actually returning to you to leave a review. <laughs> Have an awesome day. The human upgrade formerly bulletproof radio was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.